many pet owners, the thought of eating a beloved family dog or cat seems unfathomable. However, when sitting down to a meal with meat, these concerns are nowhere to be found. Hal Herzog, a psychologist, has been investigating the complex relationships we hold with animals for a long time. In his recent book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals, Hal shed some light on why we think about certain animals differently. How do we rationalize our right to eat meat? Why are our thoughts and actions in regard to different animals so inconsistent? We cover these and other topics in our conversation for this episode of the Food Focus podcast. Before we get to the podcast, I want to thank you as always for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, help others continue to discover the podcast and grow our audience by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews help others find the podcast and helps us to continue to reach a larger audience. Thanks again. And now let's get directly to my conversation with Hal. Well, Hal, thanks for taking the time, and I'm re- I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I'm uh, just finishing your book, looking forward to to reading your blog, and I really appreciated the fact that you were willing to have a conversation. As we begin, I'm going to make a bit of a confession. I, what I usually say is I'm a committed omnivore. I have to admit that it, sometimes I'm a conflicted omnivore. I'm I'm happy to eat meat. I wouldn't eat dog or cat. I have to say, uh, if presented with the opportunity for horse, I would have to think quite deeply before I proceeded. So I'm willing to eat some things and not others. I'm a proud and doting dog companion. We have two in the house that largely now due to the fact that uh, my wife is suffering a little bit from empty nest syndrome. Am I as a conflicted omnivore on my own? Well, I've got good news for you. Uh, you're not on your own at all. This is the human condition. And I'm really serious about this. I think when it comes to moral conflict, our issues over meat are almost universal, even amongst people that choose not to eat meat. In fact, there's a, there's a term for this, and it's called the meat paradox. And it's the paradox that we humans are capable of both loving animals and, and loving to eat them. And I'm, I'm like you. And so we're in the United States. So we're roughly 95% of people. And I suspect that's true in Canada as well. Yeah, the numbers are very similar in Canada. Yeah. So how do we rationalize this conflict? How do we deal with this, this dilemma? Well, I suspect that the most common way of dealing with it is not thinking about it. And we have mechanisms to help us avoid thinking about it. And increasingly, urbanization and the food industry has made this more and more possible. For example, when I was a kid, my mom would, if we were going to have chicken, which we had a lot, I was raised in the South and fried chicken was a staple. My mother would go to the uh, supermarket and she would buy something that looked like a, a chicken carcass. It didn't have feathers on it, but it had, it was a carcass and she had to cut it up. She had to chop it up. And now when I go to the, uh, to the supermarket and buy, and buy chicken, which I actually did last night, uh, what you find are these uh, styrofoam packages filled with things like uh, you know, chicken, you know, you know, McNuggets, yeah. <laughs> little, little, little things, chicken tenders. And they don't have bones. There's no bones. There's no blood. Yeah. In many cases, there's not even any 
redness. You know, they're not even, it doesn't look like flesh. So the meat industry has really helped us along in our ability to not think about what we're eating. I think to a significant degree, we have some willful ignorance. That same process by which we, the same urbanization process, the disconnect from from how food is raised and how food is produced has allowed the food industry to sort of present us with meat products that don't in any way resemble the animal they've come from and, and make it easier for us to make these choices. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, for example, I hate I, I I did not really know where meat came from until I was in my 40s, believe it or not. And uh, I was I was teaching a class at a, a college that had a, a farm program. And at that time, they actually slaughtered their own cattle. And some of my students offered me. They, they said, well, listen, you study human animal interactions. Why don't you come? Us, you know, we're going to we're going to be slaughtering the cattle. Why don't you come and help us? And I really did not want to do it. But I thought, you know, I got to, you know, this is this is what I do. You know, this is I, I can't ignore this anymore. I've got to do it. I'm a researcher. And so I spent the next couple of days helping them take down a cow. And the thing that, that got me that was uh, I was so, so surprised that when you put your hand into the carcass of a freshly killed cow, it's warm. Yep. And I, I did not know that meat was warm. I was every bit of meat I think I'd ever touched in my life had come from a refrigerator. It was a shock. It was a shock. It really was. Yeah, and, and it's and it's not unusual. Hal, a, a colleague of mine was teaching a fourth year class in restaurant management and asked. This is several years ago. Asked the question, "Where does the chicken come from?" And was met after four years in a hospitality program with a stunned silence until one smart aleck in the back row put up their hands and said the refrigerator. <laughs> the thing is, the smart aleck was, was sort of right. You know? Well, it's, it's, it's exactly true. And, and I think part of what he's done since is required students to do a value chain analysis of one of the food products that they're interested in so that they go back and understand where things come from. I think that's just a terrific idea. And, and in a way, my experience helping slaughter, this is, this is you know, I, I don't think there's any logic except bad logic on my part here, but I feel like my participation in slaughtering and uh, dismembering that, that big cow, I sort of earned my badge when it came to the right to eat meat. And I know that that's silly, but I sort of I sort of feel that way. I, I had the guts to do it. I know I know what it's like to to kill and dismember a large animal. Yeah, and I've been through processing plants and and seen the process from start to finish. And it's not something that I'd want to do every day, but I think it's something that's that's worth seeing. I think it's worth people visiting a farm. And but but I think for some people will have a different reaction than you. You and I said, okay, now this is sort of the, you know, we know where it comes from. We're okay with it. We're going to continue to, to eat meat. I think for others, it might have the opposite effect where people say, now that I know that, I'm not sure that this is something that I want to, to participate in. And that's, that's fine from, from their perspective as well. Yes, I, I think it was Paul McCartney that said if uh, slaughterhouses had glass walls, everybody would be a vegetarian, which he's wrong about that. You know, I, I 
you and I have seen have seen animals slaughtered and we haven't become vegetarian. So it's not true for everyone, but it probably is for some people. Yeah. That, so so how do we sort of come to grips with this paradox? I'm going to go back to that question. I know we, we started to talk about it. How do how do we say oh, I'm willing to eat some animals, but I'm not willing to eat others? How do we differentiate? Well, one of the ways that we differentiate is through language. And uh, language helps us to sort of dehumanize animals in a way. So we don't say, at least in English, we don't say we're going to have cow flesh for dinner. We say we're going to have beef. We're not eating pig. We're, We're eating pork. We don't seem to do that with things like chicken and fish. But at least for the larger animals, we have some linguistic, some linguistic tricks. The other thing that there's recent research in social psychology is that we tend to think that animals that we eat are less sentient. That is, that they're less capable of experience pleasure and pain, and they're less capable of consciousness. And so, for example, there are social psychologists that have had people uh, eat meat, for example, beef jerky, and then they will, or, or nuts. You know, pecans, and then they'll have them rate the the degree of of uh, the ability of things like you know cattle to experience emotions and have thoughts. And the people that eat the beef jerky tend to think the cattle are less likely to be sentient creatures. So one of the ways that we deal with uh, what psychologists call the cognitive dissonance associated with uh, having conflicting thoughts, in this case loving animals and uh, loving to eat them, is that we start to deny their uh, ability to, to suffer. That, that, that's interesting. And, and, and I hadn't thought about that. You started with language as well. And I, I first recognized it in the German language, which I learned as a young child, uh, being the, the son of immigrants. But we do it in English as well. We, we sort of differentiate. We eat food. Our pets eat dog food or cat food or fish food, and we have pig feed and cattle feed. And in the German language, they don't even eat. They have a different word for that. So to a significant degree, we even create this language to differentiate ourselves from animals, maybe to help us with the, uh, with that cognitive dissonance that you talked about. Yes, I think that's a I think that's a really great point, and uh, I'd never really thought about that before. Yeah, the, even the actual things that we we feed the animals, I use the word feed, you know, feed, feed the animals that we have in our houses as pets, and the, the animals that we eat you know, are different. I, I think I think that's a really great observation. You know, another thing that's interesting to me is why we don't eat some animals, and let's take dog for example. In the United States and Canada, we don't eat dogs because we increasingly we think of them as family members, as extensions of, of, of our kin. There's a phenomenon in the pet industry called the humanization of pets. So to eat a dog would be, in the sense, sort of a form of cannibalism. You know, it's our, it's our pet. You know. On the other hand, people also don't eat dogs in uh, the Middle East, and they don't eat them in parts of India. But it's not because dogs are considered members of the family. It's because they're considered disgusting and unclean. And so there's some people that don't eat dogs because they adore them, and there's other people that find dogs disgusting, and it would be like eating a rat. And there's, of course, there's other places, and it was common in many parts of the world. People know about this in Korea and China, but 
dogs were oftentimes eaten in Africa and parts of Europe. Uh, so there's so you know dogs fall into all the categories that I talk about in my book. You know, some we love, some we hate, and some we eat, and it's very very culturally defined. I, I, I agree with you. It's very, very much driven by culture and, and to a significant degree, tradition and how we think about animals. Is, is that changing over time? It can absolutely change. And so take, for example, one of my favorite examples is eating raw fish. When I was a kid, the idea of eating raw fish was so disgusting. I would not consider that, you know. And now sushi, I, I, I'm a, I'm a fan. I've become a fan. I eat raw fish and so do, so do many, many, many people. So we have in basically in one generation, we've had an amazing shift in, uh, how we relate to that one type of flesh that you know, went from being disgusting to delicious and probably what a 30, 40 year period, something like that. Yeah, very much. And, and, and part of it is an introduction to a wider range of food choices and to, a larger willingness to try some of these new foods, but you have to get over that barrier. That's right. That's exactly right. And and that that doesn't just relate necessarily just relate to whether it's an animal we want to eat or not. There are certainly parts of animals that some people will eat more willingly than others. I know in your book you talked about, I think it was, if I re remember correctly, studying in Lebanon and eating brain. Yes, yes, I did. They had uh, sheep brain was they had it at the uh, university cafeteria, and you could have it boiled or fried. Fried was better. At the cafeteria. Yeah. Wow. Uh, my son talked about trying pig brain when he was in. He he did a semester, studied a semester in China, and said it, it was a bit of a delicacy and 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 a treat, and that he quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I wasn't that keen. On, I actually sort of like the fried brain, but the. the the boiled brain, which they would sort of spread almost like peanut butter on a piece of bread, make into a sandwich. I was never too keen on that. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And my, my son was in Sichuan province in China, where there is a lot of heat, which may provide masking for some of the flavor. So we, we've talked about some of the the paradoxes or the conflicts that, that we face as meat eaters. Do non-meat eaters face some of the same conflict? They face similar conflicts, and the fact that they take moral issues oftentimes more seriously makes the conflicts even greater for them. We really see some of the paradoxes of meat when we look at the dietary habits of vegetarians. And there have been quite a few studies now in which uh, uh, researchers will contact a large group of people in some cases, sometimes thousands of people, ask them, about their diet, and some most people say they're omnivores. Um, they eat some meat. Some people say they're vegetarians. Some people say they're vegans. And then they'll go back a week later, and they'll ask them, you know, what did you have? What did you eat in the last 24 hours? And what at least three studies have found, large studies have found that 60 to 70 percent of people that say they're vegetarians, these are Americans, ate some form of animal flesh in the previous 24 hours. So that's not the previous week. That's not the previous month. That's the previous 24 hours. And we even see the same thing in, in, in amongst vegans. So, for example, Bill Clinton uh, made a big deal of the fact that uh, primarily for health reasons, he became a vegan. And uh, he was I saw him one time on a, doing a CNN interview. And 
Uh, he was talking about you know, how great it was being a vegan. Uh, he had lost a lot of weight. He's felt better than he'd ever had in his life. And then he said, oh, and then I eat salmon about once a week. I try to eat a little salmon about once a week. I'm like, Bill, you can't be a vegan and eat salmon. And, and, we, and, vegan, and, and vegetarians also have some interesting ways of dealing with these paradoxes in terms of labels and categories. For, for example, there was just a very recent study uh, published by researchers from UCLA, and they were interested in people that say they're vegetarians, but that also ate fish. Yeah. And so te technically, these are pescatarians, but 40% of pescatarians say that they eat fish, admit that they eat fish. But one of the questions the researchers asked these pescatarians was, do you consider fish to be a form of meat? And 40% of the meat of the fish eating uh, vegetarians said, no, fish is not a form of meat. So <laughs> I was stunned by that. You know, I'm thinking like, what is it, a vegetable? <laughs> you know, yeah. But they did not, they did not, they with good conscience could consider themselves vegetarians by saying that I eat fish, but fish aren't meat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. We we did a survey earlier. Uh, I was going to say earlier this year, but uh, earlier in 2019, where we found the same thing that you just discussed. Oh. We asked people to self-declare late in the survey whether they were vegetarian, vegan, flexitarian, pescatarian. We gave them all sorts of choices. But earlier in the survey, we'd asked them about their food eating habits. And, and it was related to something completely different. It wasn't looking to try and trap anyone. But we found that 60% of the vegans, the self-declared vegans, were eating meat as part of a main meal at least once a week. Wow. That's amongst the vegans. That's really, that's really interesting. In fact... The, the number was about 40% with vegetarians and it was higher amongst the vegans. And, and well, when I talked to some vegans about it, they said, well, maybe people were uh, quote unquote transitioning, which I suppose might be, uh, but not 60% of them. I get the sense and, and my guess is that, that these people are, are virtue signaling a little bit, that they're dealing with the paradox by saying, look, I don't eat meat, but then when the curtains are pulled, they are eating. I mean, I don't think they're doing it clandestinely. I think maybe they are dealing with that cognitive dissonance and they're trying to. But the truth is, I guess the both the unfortunate and fortunate truth is that, that meat tastes good. I think that's correct. I mean, there's no doubt. For most people, meat tastes good. Uh, not, not for everyone. My, one of my daughters. No, that's true. One of my daughters is a uh, almost a lifelong vegetarian. She's, she's in her 30s now. She recently went back to eating meat. But she's never particularly like me. Her twin sister, on the other hand, loves me. So I've got a natural experiment, even within my own my own family. Kids that that were exposed to the same food profiles and had the same parents were fraternal twins, uh, so they're not identical twins, but they had completely different relationships with me. Well, that's interesting. On a previous episode of the podcast, I had a conversation with five vegans, non-confrontational, just wanted to sort of hear how they thought about it, what their motivations were, what some of the challenges were. And 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 I, I saw some of the same tensions, you know, where they where they draw the line differed across the group. What was interesting to me was I asked the question about insect protein. It, you know, how how do you feel about insect protein? And one of the women who was probably the most activist vegan said, nope. 
I won't even eat insects, do no harm, right? So for her, the line was absolute and quite close to, to plants. What was interesting is the same woman said, though, that if she had cockroaches in her apartment, it would be more than okay to step on those uh, because that's bugs in their apartment. So I think there are all sorts of different sort of hoops, that mental hoops that we jump through as we work through the rationalization of our meat consumption. No, I think, I think that's correct. And I think that people that are vegetarians and vegans, ethical vegetarians and vegans, are, are particularly interested, interesting because unlike someone like me that's pretty comfortable living in a gray area, and I, I, I know the arguments against eating meat, and I know that they're much better than my arguments for eating meat. And my only argument for eating meat is because it tastes good. And so I have a very low, I have a late, very low moral sense in this regard. But and I have enormous respect for people that I'm hypocritical about it, but are not hypocritical about it. And they take these issues seriously. On the other hand, there's a moral cost. There, there's a psychological and social cost that come with taking moral issues seriously. For example, I recently uh, wrote a Psychology Today blog on depression in vegetarians. And vegetarians are, are uh, the number of studies have found that vegetarians are, tend to be more depressed than non-vegetarians. Now, I don't, we don't know why that's the case. I, I suspect it's not because you know, eating vegetables makes you depressed, uh, but it might be that people that take moral seriously Moral, moral issues seriously live in a more a, a tougher world. Um, the other problem that I've talked to a lot of vegans, I have you know, vegan friends and vegetarian friends, is that when, when I talk to a, a group and there, there's vegans in the group, and I'll say, you know, it can be it can be tough on your social life you know, to be a vegan or a vegetarian, especially vegan, you know, because you're because so much of our social life revolves over around meals, and if you have non-vegan friends, they don't know what to cook for you. Yeah. You know, they, they, they don't, they don't. And so, and so it, things become tough. I remember when I, one of the first studies I did in this area is I study of animal activists, why people become animal activists and how their lives are affected. And I remember talking to a young woman and she said that she had given up uh, trying to date men. And I said, why? And she said, and I still remember this, it's burned on, on my brain. She said, just going out to, for dinner becomes an ordeal. And so there is a there is a cost. I mean, you've got the you've got the moral high ground, and there's there's great satisfaction in living a moral life, a morally consistent life, and trying to live a morally consistent life. On the other hand, it's not all you know, sweetness and light sometimes. Yeah, it's it's tough, and I think that there are tough moral issues that the moral questions that we address every day for ourselves in interactions with others and just in normal life, but probably the most consistent one we have is eating meat. I think that's absolutely true. If you if you if you ask people what what kind of relationships with you have with animals, the most common interaction that they have with other species is putting them in their mouth. You know, it's just a true fact. That they don't need to think about. Well <laughs> I had I hadn't thought about that. That's exactly right. And, and it's interesting to see as people are paying more attention, maybe this is a good place to end as I could talk to you all day, Hal, uh, but we try and keep, we try and manage the length of our episodes and maybe we'd set up another conversation at another day. But one of the things I think as people are understanding more what they're putting out in their mouth and thinking more about what, it, what they're putting in their mouth, I think for some people, they, they learn the stories and 
And they say, no, that makes sense. I understand it. And, and I am comfortable with how those animals are raised. And other peoples are saying, oh, I looked at that and I'm, and I'm not sure. And I think we're going to see some really interesting dynamics as we sort of bounce back from the urbanization and the lack of knowledge to, to some of us getting a better knowledge about how food is produced. And it'll be interesting to see the dynamic. The, one of the most interesting points, I think, in your book was when you talked about variability. There aren't these absolutes that we all have different opinions, and those opinions will mean that we'll have more and more people that we disagree with or that eat differently than we do. No, I think, I think, that's, I think that's an excellent point. I, I completely, completely agree. Well, Hal, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm going to uh, give a shout out to, to your book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, which I'm just about finished and I'm enjoying immensely. And also for your blog on psychology today called Animals and Us that they can find by Googling your name and psychology today or Animals and Us and they'll find it. I'm looking forward to reading it. Is there anything in closing that uh, I should have asked you, but I didn't? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, maybe we talk about it some other time, but uh, I think the future of meat's interesting. I'm a big fan of eating insects, and I'm a big fan of meat that's going to be grown in great big giant bats in New Jersey. As long as it tastes good, I'm going to be there. I'm going to look forward to not, not being responsible for the death of chickens and cows and stuff like that. It's going to have to taste good. Yeah, it's going to have to taste good, and and we're it, it'll be interesting. I'd love to have a conversation about it with you in the future. It's something I've spent some time thinking about and working on. You know, we're getting we're going to be good at ground. We're not sure we're at a muscle yet, so that that mouth feel of a uh, of a steak uh, with intermuscular fat, we're not probably there yet. But we are at a place where we're growing in a vat using yeast. Uh, dairy proteins so that we can grow casein and whey and start to make at least some dairy proteins in a large vat. So uh, I, I think, what is it? The Chinese curse, may you live an interesting time, <laughs> will be true for all of us over the next few years. Thanks very much, Hal, and I'm looking forward to chatting again. I agree. wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.